Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sandy Jahar. But first, we like to check in on current uh, topics in health and healthcare. So what's got your attention this week, Harlan? Yeah, thanks, Howie. And we're looking forward to this interview with Sandeep. But, but I want to jump into a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine first. And it's just an example for people listening of how many things we don't know that, that are really important details in the care patient. So if I ask you, somebody comes in with a stroke and they're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation during the stroke. So we believe that, as you know, that irregular heart rate can lead the upper chamber of the heart to develop blood clots, which can be pushed out and end up in the brain and cause a stroke. And, and so that's why a lot of people get their blood thinned anticoagulants when they have atrial fibrillation or prevent these strokes. Now, here's somebody comes in, nobody knew they had atrial fibrillation, they have a stroke, and they're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. Question is, when should you start the blood thinner? When, when would it be good to, to get them on a blood thinner? And the reason it's a question at all is because there's been some concern that when you have a stroke, that if you give a, a, a blood thinner, if you, if you give this anticoagulant to people, you can have what's called a hemorrhagic conversion. That is, you take a, a stroke that was because their blood clot formed and it deprived a part of the brain of blood, that could, with the blood thinner, that damaged tissue could start to bleed. And then they can start to actually get an intracranial hemorrhage. It's in, inside the brain, you can get a bleed, which could be catastrophic. So people have often thought you need to wait a couple of days. And actually they did a trial here where they, they took people that came in and they randomized them to more rapid anticoagulation. So if you had a minor or moderate stroke, they began the anticoagulation within 48 hours, within the two days. And if you had a major stroke, they, they started it on day six or seven, a week later. Now that's in contrast to the normal situation where if you have a minor stroke, people are usually waiting three or four days, a, a moderate stroke, six or seven days, and a major stroke, they might wait two weeks. Now that may just seem like a couple days, but it's an important decision when you're taking care of patients because you want to protect them against more blood clots going to the brain. On the other hand, you don't want to get this bleeding in the brain. And, and guess what? When they did this study, very interesting, they enrolled about 2,000 people at a lot of different sites all across the world. And what they found out was that the earlier treatment actually seemed to produce a, a better outcome. Now, the way they did this trial, they provided a range of benefits. So the benefit was as much as a almost three point percentage point benefit from an outcome that they were looking at, for example, a recurrent stroke, but they also included issues of uh, bleeding. So they, they added all this together, systemic embolism, which means a blood clot went somewhere else or vascular death within 30 days after randomization. And so the, the more rapid treatment on average was better, could have been as, as much better as a benefit for every 33 people treated, maybe at the bottom side for every 200 people treated, but largely not a big downside. And the, the hemorrhagic part, the, the bleeding part that people were worried about was pretty rare in both groups. So anyway, I'm just bringing this up because it's just, we need to be doing like tons of these kinds of studies. I mean, all this time later, we're not sure when to start the blood thinner on people coming with a stroke and atrial fibrillation. Studies like this all of a sudden start filling in the cracks of, of our ignorance and uh, are so important to start being able to, to ask these very simple questions, but they are critically important to so many patients around the world. Yeah, now it's, I'm grateful to see people investigating these things. There are so many questions. Um, 
you know, I, I periodically have AFib. I've had family members ask questions about this. Um, and it's amazing to me how much um, indecision there is about a lot of features about treating AFib when you start and stop anticoagulation and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, just wanted to share with folks because it was just one of these things that uh, has baffled the profession and now there's some good evidence. But hey, let's get on to the interview with Sandeep. Dr. Sandeep Jahar is a practicing heart failure cardiologist at North Shore LIJ Hospital. Most recently, Dr. Jahar has written My Father's Brain, Understanding Life in the Shadow of Alzheimer's, a memoir about his experience with his father's dementia. This is his fourth bestseller. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, focusing on medicine, health, aging, and ethics. He has also appeared frequently on national public radio, CNN, and MSNBC, and contributed to various publications, such as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Jahar holds a bachelor's and a PhD in physics from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MD from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He completed his residency at New York Hospital Weill Cornell Medical Center and a cardiology fellowship with a specialization in heart failure at New York University School of Medicine. So first, welcome to the Health and Veritas podcast. I usually go right into the first question, but in this case, I need to duly note that Harlan brought uh, you and your book to my attention, and I know he wanted to relate why this was so important to him and should be to our listeners. So I'm going to let Harlan take it away from here. You know, I'd said to Howie Sandeep that this was important to me personally because of what I went through with my father, who was a, a physician and uh, really a large influence on my life course. That's understates it. I, I don't, I'm choked up kind of thinking about this. But, you know, who, who was beginning to this sort of giant of a man in my world, you know, experiences cognitive decline. And in contrast to your father, um, and his parents also had experienced some of this, he, I think, uh, you know, through COVID, he got ill and he, he just stopped eating. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I want to thank you for writing the book. It meant a lot to me to read it. I'm sure others will have the same experience. And, and I just wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, you experienced this. What brought you to to actually spend the time and devote yourself to reliving it and writing about it and then sharing it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I got an email after I sent um, or my publisher sent an advanced uh, copy to one of the you know real titans in the field of dementia. And he wrote back and said, you know, most people after going through what you've been through don't even want to think about it anymore, but you've provided a very important public service in wanting to write about it. And actually, I never really wanted to write about it. My father got sick in 2014. Well, that's when we he was diagnosed by a neurologist. He had been living in Fargo, North Dakota, working as a research scientist, running a lab, having postdocs and graduate students, running a greenhouse, doing microscope work. I mean, really, by all indications, he was doing fine. I was living in New York, and so was my brother. We went through a very long journey with him for seven years before he died. And I would say that really, you know, it was only toward the end, so probably sort of around the time of COVID, actually, that I thought about writing this book. I had been doing a lot of research about Alzheimer's and dementia 
mainly to try to understand what was going on with my dad. You know, he was a brilliant man who, who became, you know, severely cognitively as well as emotionally impaired. And it was very difficult for me to process. Um, there were times when I was very impatient. And um, for me, at least, as a scientist, as a, as a doctor, uh, I needed to know what was going on with him, you know, sort of on a neurological level to help inform my caregiving. And so many years later, when, you know, he was really declining, I thought, you know, this has been the most difficult journey I've ever taken. So I, I ended up writing the book that I needed, that I didn't have through this journey, a book that's both about the personal aspects, but also provides sort of a neurological script for what go, goes on in dementia and, and, and Alzheimer's with the intent of that, that knowledge, you know, is power, but also knowledge provides comfort and, um, and patience. And I think patience is in real short shrift when you're a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's. And let me just say for our listeners that the book is a layered approach to writing that is, I, I don't think I've ever seen done so well. I mean, you cover the basic science that we know about with Alzheimer's and cognitive function even before Alzheimer's. You then use very personal narratives, um, personal and poignant narratives about your own experiences. You have clinical narratives uh, from doctor's offices. And I'm just wondering how were you able to keep track of all that over the years? You have this from 2014 up until I think early 2021. Were you journaling during this time? Did you anticipate that you would be writing this? I did not anticipate I'd be writing this book. I was working on a different book for a large portion of this time. Um, it was a, a book called Heart, A History, and, which came out in 2018, um, the fall of also a bestseller. Yeah, and I'd say around the time that Heart came out, I started doing a little bit of journaling. For me, journaling is just a way of recording my experience. It's it's doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to write about what I'm journaling about, but I've been a fairly prodigious uh, journaler for um, you know most of my writing career. I mean, I started when I was in graduate school and. You know, I, I like to journal because it helps me clarify my thinking about things. And with my father's disease, there was just so much that was mysterious to me that needed clarification. You know, I write in the book that, I mean, when my dad was diagnosed by a neurologist with MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment, honestly, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I, I mean, I went to medical school after all. I didn't even know what MCI was. I had never even heard the the term. I mean, it's a sort of pre-dementia, but when he said, this is mild cognitive impairment, the first thing I did when I got home is read up on it. What does it mean? What, what are the chances that this is going to progress? What are the chances this is, in fact, what we suspected at that, at that time, which is that it's Alzheimer's. So I just found myself sort of butting against my ignorance over and over you know, with regard to the brain and dementia and, and memory. Why was my father becoming so emotionally labile? Why did he have a lack of self-awareness toward the end? What was going on in the brain that sort of underlay that clinical 
syndrome. All those things spurred me to, to do a lot of reading and a lot of journaling. But I'd say that I didn't really know I was going to write this book until probably sometime during the COVID period. You know, I, I want to explore a couple different themes with you. One of them is this this issue about the diagnosis of, of mild cognitive impairment. Once you have that diagnosis, that all of a sudden the person with that diagnosis gets marginalized mm-hmm. and, and as much by their diseases, our response to mm-hmm. them. And and so it's no wonder that people aren't aren't eager to to have someone start to label them with cognitive dysfunction. And I find it a tension because on one hand, we want people to be diagnosed so that we can respond appropriately, plan, help, support, assist, facilitate. On the other hand, once you get that label, uh, everyone's interactions with you, I think, do change. I mean, I noticed it in our family. Yeah, yeah. So it was very clear. I mean, actually, it was very clear to my mother. She she was the one who actually told us to take my father to a neurologist because, uh, you know, we had gone on a walk and she said, you know, your dad uh, got lost driving to Sears the other day. And instead of um, calling one of you, his sons, he stopped the car on the road and actually wandered out into incoming traffic to try to stop a car to ask for the way home. So the neurologist said, given the history you've given me, given the history your dad was unable to provide, and then given the scores on the mini mantle status exam, as well as other neurological testing, it's pretty clear that he has mild cognitive impairment. Now, the larger issue is what do you do with that diagnosis and, and how do you respond to it as a family? And I would say that what you mentioned is, is, is something that I wrote about a lot in the book about, you know, there came a point where I just didn't trust my father to have even a normal thought anymore. And that was horrible. Um, both for me as a caregiver, but I can only imagine how bad it was for him as a brilliant man. But it was just very hard to see him in the same way after he got this diagnosis. And, uh, and a part of that is, um, you know, what I write about in the book is sort of our hypercognitive culture where, you know, what we prize in the Western world, really all over the world is, you know, sort of individualism and ability to process information, ability to to be economically productive. And when my father lost the ability to do those things, he became marginalized, not just by the outside world, uh, which kind of fled from him once it was clear that he was declining from Alzheimer's, but even his own family. I mean, we had a really hard time, um, you know, dealing with it. I want to, I want to pivot from that topic to a related topic. And and you wrote a New York Times opinion piece less than six months ago, I think, or around six months ago, yeah. on how would you feel about a 100-year-old doctor? Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to bring that up because I've, I've sort of faced this with my own family. My mother needed a knee replacement about two years ago. And the person that everybody said was the best was 80 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a little concerned at first. And uh, honestly, he turned out to be the best surgeon. Uh, She's had two knee replacements and his was without question the better one. Uh, And every outcome I hear about this man is exceptional. But you wrote about this and what people should anticipate and what our system should anticipate as our medical professionals also age. So uh, do you want to just say a couple of words about your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, look, dementia 
cognitive impairment are growing and by now massive public health problems. I mean, one out of every 10 Americans over the age of 65 has dementia or a related Alzheimer's or some related dementia. So there's no reason to think that doctors are completely immune to that. There is something to be said for having cognitive reserve, something to be said for education. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously economics play a role. You know, people who uh, are wealthier tend to have, you know, be buffeted from the sort of slings and arrows of uh, disease and, 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 and uh, uh, social responses to disease. But the point is that, you know, there may be fantastic surgeons who are 80 years old. Um, and I've certainly met my share of very young doctors who I wouldn't trust to take care of my family. Um, but the reality is that, that with aging does come cognitive decline. That's just a truism. And does it happen to everyone at the same rate? Obviously not. So my argument is that we need to be prepared because doctors are working longer in the article I, I mentioned a hundred year old neurologist who seems to be a wonderful person I interacted with him certainly very very sharp but even if he is he's really the exception um, I think most doctors or most people at the age of hundred are going to have significant cognitive impairment and so the argument is that we should have competency testing like we do for pilots uh, I mean well for pilots actually we don't have competency testing we actually uh, mandate retirement age and and I certainly don't want to do that for doctors because people age at different rates. But um, I, I do think that competency testing is a worthwhile thing to explore and not just for doctors, but for lawyers and accountants and even politicians. You know, anyone who has people's lives or livelihoods, you know, in their hands, uh, we should make sure that they're cognitively intact and they can do the job that, that we've entrusted them with. We actually have that at Yale New Haven. Alan Friedman, who's our chief medical officer at Yale New Haven Hospital uh, in Tom Balsazak, our chief medical officer of the entire system, have instituted across the system competency testing starting at age 70. Yeah. And uh, actually, of course, there was some resistance going forward, but now it's a well accepted. I, I want to hit on a, just a couple. Uh, I'm going to ask a quick thing. I'll give you back, Howie, and then I've got one thing to end on. You talk about in the book the fact that for some people, lying to people with cognitive dysfunction is a strategy. And and then you come out strongly, and you know how much uh, I resonate with this. You say, my own career, quote, in my own career, I've seen how even well-meaning paternalism can be damaging. The doctor-patient relationship is founded on trust and paternalistic interference, not only compromises the relationship, but also can erode faith in the profession. And yet, yet it seems like it's a legitimate approach, when I say legitimate, uh, uh, one that's accepted by some people. And, and you even referred to when you saw the, this nursing home uh, in Europe, you were saying, you know, that almost seems like the Truman Show to you, like, you know, the way it was being set up. What are your reflections on it now with a little bit of distance? I mean, I get it. You're just trying to lay anxiety with people seemingly persistent in believing something. But Maybe we can share a couple thoughts about this. I mean, my problem with lying to my father was that I felt it was compromising his dignity. And, you know, some of that was informed by my experiences as a doctor being trained. And, and can you just give an example of what we're maybe the listeners don't really know? Because sure. we're saying lying, it sounds so much harsher. Yeah. It's really about 
going along with the story that they're yeah. telling, right? Not trying to correct them, essentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, to, to some degree. I mean, with my father, you know, a major sticking point was that we had a live-in caregiver and he didn't want to pay her. He didn't want us to pay her. He, he wasn't handling his finances at that point. So my, uh, and when he would find out that she had been paid, he would get really angry. And so, but I insisted on telling him, look, dad, you know, she's working for us. You know that people who work need to be paid. I thought that leveling with him was a way for me to tell him, dad, you're still a part of my world, you know, that you still deserve to know the truth. But the problem is that he couldn't process the truth. And there are other times when telling the truth actually caused him deep, deep anguish, like when I would tell him that mom died. And then he would forget. And he'd ask me the next day. And I'd tell him again, Dad, I told you mom died no matter what we say. She's not coming back. And that caused him tremendous anguish. So my, my brother uh, eventually came around to saying, oh, you know, mom's not here right now. She's she's on her way or she's on the plane or whatever it is. And, and, and I would see that that really... Um, allayed his anxiety in in in, in tremendous ways. So yeah. so I would say that that there is a conception of dignity that I came around to, which is validating someone's reality, even if it's not the reality that you share, even if it's not objective mm-hmm. reality, whatever that means. Um, so for my dad, you know, thinking that my mother was still alive was it, it was a way to prevent tremendous anguish and. And also the revisitation of anguish, you know, because Alzheimer's mm-hmm. patients do forget. And so, you know, it, it, I don't believe in lying to patients. Um, and I don't do that as a matter of course, obviously. But I do think there's a difference between lying for someone else's benefit and lying for your own. And yeah. and in, in my father's case, I think um, I came around to this view, which is it's, some people call it therapeutic fibbing, therapeutic deception, validation therapy, but just sort of validating through white lies a person's conception of reality. Uh, there is dignity with that, especially if it prevents, um, you know, pain and anguish. Yeah, such an important insight. You talk a lot about the your family as a community supporting your father and your mother, um, but you you, and you talk about clinicians helping you, obviously, but you don't talk about any larger communities out there. Are there groups, are there communities that people can reach out to to get support when they're going through this, to share these common experiences and learn from them? I mean, there are several communities um, uh, that, uh, I mean, well, so the dementia villages I visited in the Netherlands and just outside Amsterdam, there's a, a nursing home, but it's really built as a small town where people with advanced dementia can live in a very hu- more humane way than we provide in the U.S. In, in U.S. nursing homes, they can they can wander. You know, so one of the big balances or trade-offs in in dementia care and really elder care in general is safety versus autonomy. You know, no one wants someone to wander and trip and break their hip. So we tend to like lock them into memory units. In this dementia village, they accept the trade-off. They accept the fact that, that people would want to wander and they accept the risk of you know, potentially falling. So it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little town. The, the residents who have advanced dementia live in these homes that are sort of um, 
uh, curated to appeal to them and sort of the lifestyles that they're used to. Um, they have a, a, a classical music room. Um, they have concerts. They have a cafe. Uh, they, have a, they have a little fountain. They have a pond, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, the guide said, you know, people said, oh, you can't have a pond. People, you know, people with dementia will, they'll, they'll climb over the fence and, and fall into the pond. But, but, and he said, you know, people with dementia aren't stupid. You know, they're, they're not going to climb over a fence and jump into a pond. You know, right. that's just, that, that's sort of the American way of thinking about it. But the European way is different. And, and, and then they had these caretakers who sort of pose as like, you know, the barista in the cafe or gardeners, and they're sort of keeping track of what's going on. And they, they help people who get lost, get, get, get back home. So it is sort of like the movie, the Truman show, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's almost like a film being made. I, I, I often thought we, we should build these communities around the year that you likely remember best. So like, you know, you have a bunch of communities that are look like the 1950s. You got a bunch of communities that look like the 1970s, you know, they're kind of like, it, it, it sort of helps people contextually. Yeah. I, I, I want to just ask you one final thing, just we're getting to the end. It, so you say, um, I'm, I'm just going to read from the book, right? You say, like my father, I firmly believed in the importance of genetics and heredity and determination of human fate. And as a disciple, this philosopher could not help but worry that what was happening to him was going to happen to me too. You talk also about how you guys have sort of a similar body habitus and approach and actually some aspects of your personality in his prime, you know, reflect kind of how you are. I'm just curious, having gone through this experience, has it changed you in terms of how you think about how you live your life and, and what your future may hold? Yeah. I mean, so there are genetic elements, uh, hereditary elements to dementia, typically in early onset, as you probably know, um, where there's a very strong genetic basis for that. For my, in my father's case, the late onset dementia, there are genetic factors. The, uh, the, but you're answering as a, it, it, you're now going to your cognitive, you know, scientific yeah. brain. Yeah. I'm asking about your heart. I worry, you know, I worry about what's going to happen in the future. I mean, it, you know, this was a, a, a glimpse of a potential future. Um, and it, it, it certainly creates uh, a lot of anxiety in me about what the future holds. Um, not just, you know, whether I might develop dementia, but then the impact it's going to have on my family, on my children. Um, mm. And then there are also aspects of advanced directives that, you know, I realize now how difficult it is even to follow an advanced directive when the advanced directive is written when you're cognitively intact, like my father's was. And, and then when he became really so impaired, but didn't really see him unhappy, he wasn't saying, look, it's my time, I want to die. He was actually seemed pretty happy. And, and I came to realize that cognitive impairment and happiness are not actually mutually exclusive necessarily. They might be for caregivers with a sort of hypercognitive prejudice, like I probably had, where, you know, I didn't, I wondered whether my father's life was really worth living, um, given the massive decline, the precipitous decline from, you know, being an eminent scientist to, you know, really just being happy with just a spoonful of ice cream. But for him, you know, his perceptions, his ambitions, all these things shrunk in a way that allowed him to continue to function and, and, and seem to be happy. So 
I think it's a very difficult issue, and 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 yeah, of course I worry about it. Uh, I well, and, and I don't want to make it uncomfortable. I, I just was pushing because obviously I've had the same thoughts, and it did leave me a little bit with seize the moment, you know, seize the moment. Yeah, and I would say professionally, there's been sort of consequences too. I mean, you know, I was like a lot of doctors and cardiologists, you know, when I do heart failure, a lot of my patients die. And, um, and when they would get to that point, very often I would withdraw because, you know, doctors, we want to fix things. And when someone is terminal and entering hospice care, we often withdraw. And I found in my experience that, that it was really important for me that my father's doctor still be involved, still communicate with us. Um, that was a real balm in those final days. And, um, and so I aspire to that too yeah. now, you know, much more yeah, than I ever did. Good. Yeah, that's a good lesson. Well, thank you so much. Can't, can't thank you enough. It's wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, it was, it was great being with you. And um, yeah, I thank you admire everything you're doing. Hey, that was a terrific interview. I'm so glad that, that we were able to get him on the show. But let's turn to your part now, Howie. What's on your mind? So back in early January, we talked about how physician groups were selling out to private equity firms, and this was having untoward effects on the delivery of high-quality care. The references we made at that time were to the orthopedic surgery groups. We also mentioned radiology, emergency medicine, so on. The concerns we raised were that these firms were mostly focused on costs and profits and didn't seem to have the proper incentives for quality access or price. So fast forward to May, just a couple of weeks ago, and we have just witnessed uh, the first of what turned out to be two massive private equity-backed failures. One is Envision, which remains one of the largest physician staffing groups covering emergency medicine, radiology, anesthesiology, hospital medicine, other physician services. They also own the large ambulatory surgery practice covering a large territory. They have been at the center of numerous controversies, but had been bought out by Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, or KKR, in 2018. KKR is one of the most well-known, well-funded private equity firms in the U.S. So Genesis Care is another private equity-backed firm, also with a substantial stake in this case from KKR, that is about to enter bankruptcy, if you believe news reports. This leading oncology care provider has its largest base of operations in Australia, but they also have significant centers in the US, UK, and Spain. Companies go bankrupt all the time, and because of leverage, meaning a lot of debt, and the reality that these firms are often teetering when purchased, private equity-backed companies have a much higher rate of bankruptcy. But it's worth briefly reminding our listeners that healthcare management is difficult. And by that, I mean that despite the many news reports of individuals getting rich off of healthcare, and many do, we have structural problems in our system right now that mean that if you don't have a strong base of patients with commercial insurance, you too might be teetering on the brink of insolvency. You and I have talked about how broken our system is multiple times before, but we have mostly focused on how bad it is for the consumer, and it is bad but it is also broken for many providers. Too many hospitals, physician groups, nursing homes, mental health providers, and so on are struggling to break even, and that is not good for anyone. Yeah, I think, I'm so glad you brought this up. I think one of the issues is that people are concerned that it, because of the perversity of our system, there are certain areas in the hospital where, or, or in the healthcare system where there are big margins and there are some where there are negative margins. And if the private equity comes in and tries to suck out all the high right. margin, then, right. then hospitals are left low margin. 
you know, story's still going to be told, but but I think it's fair enough to say that that some of these investments have gone south and yes. that some have involved risk and, and we'll have to keep our eye on this. Yep. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find this on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stumpf, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.